Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share their real-life experiences and the tools they developed to still live their best lives. My name is Jenny Taylor, and today we have a very unique episode. Rather than a conversation with me, Michelle, and a guest, we are going to focus in on the events of 9-11. We're going to take you through a journey, both local and national. The local side of things is going to let you hear some of the behind-the-scenes work of the Weaver 9-11 project. We'll join you with our project manager, Kirsten Cragen, up in the Ogden, Utah area. And she and Kellyanne, our producer, are going to let you know a little bit about the behind-the-scenes work of this beautiful project commemorating 20 years since the terrorist attacks of 9-11. But first, I had a great opportunity on September 11th itself to spend the weekend at Fort Benning in Georgia. That is the home of the infantry of the United States Army, including the Rangers and some other wonderful groups. It's also the home of a memorial to the global war on terrorism and includes several giant granite panels on which the names of every fallen service member from this most recent war are listed, literally etched in stone. My husband's name is one of those names from the year 2018. And of course, this uh, memorial goes back to names all the way from 2001 to 2021. Uh, the 13 individuals who were killed most recently in Afghanistan, their names will be added to the wall next year through a special service so that their families can have time this year to complete the burial and that initial grieving process. While I was in Fort Benning, joining 450 other Gold Star family members, I had the opportunity to share a few of my thoughts. And those thoughts have been recorded, and that's what we're going to share with you today to kick off this episode. So stay tuned. Again, a very unique week, very different approach to what we're doing a chance to hear a little bit about 9-11 as it relates not only to today's world, but particularly today's world for surviving military families who have lost a loved one in this global war on terror. Thanks for joining us. I think you'll really like this week's episode. Our last speaker is Miss Jenny Taylor, wife of Major Brent Taylor. Brent Taylor grew up with a natural bent for leadership and a love for his country. After 9-11, he and his five brothers decided they needed to serve their country by joining the military. Brent enlisted first as an Army soldier in the Utah National Guard, 
and subsequently was commissioned as an officer in the military intelligence corps. Brent saw himself as a citizen soldier. Not only did he have four deployments during the war on terrorism, but he also served on North Ogden City Council, and in 2013, he was elected mayor. On November 3, 2018, he died in Afghanistan from an insider attack while training Afghan forces. His body came home on Election Day 2018, a fitting day for a well-loved civic leader. He was 39 years old and left a wife and seven children, one just an infant. Please welcome Ms. Jenny Taylor, Gold Star Spouse. I'd like to echo my thanks to the thanks that has been given to Rachel and to everyone else who put these events together each year and make it possible for us to come together. I'll tell you, as I hear the stories, as I listen to Dylan speak and to uh, Justin's mom and, and just listen and hear these stories, my heart as an American just tears right at me. And I feel so grateful and so sorry for your loss. And then it's so overwhelming to look around a room like this or a room at TAPS, or a room with the Gary Sinise Foundation, and realize that every single person in this room has experienced that kind of loss. So my story is a lot like your story. I fell in love with someone who was in love with this country, who was in love with freedom, who was in love with hope and opportunity, not just for himself, and not just for me and our kids, but for humanity. We met on a blind date, and it was a disaster. After that, he asked me out a second time, and on our first real date, I remember getting to know each other, and he mentioned something about wanting to join the military. It was 2003, and I'm a really patriotic person. But the second he said something about wanting to be in the military, my stomach hit the floor. And I caught myself thinking, why in the world do I care if this kid wants to join the Army? I just barely met him. But it's almost as if maybe my soul knew that that desire of his would have an impact in my life. It was 2003. We were married at the end of that year. And at the beginning of 2004, he shipped out to Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri for boot camp. I remember learning as a newlywed bride how to really appreciate the little things that a lot of couples fight over. I'd be at work and hear a coworker talk about having her husband's socks on the floor. He just doesn't put the toilet seat down. And I would think, man, I wish my husband were here to leave his socks on the floor or not put the toilet seat down. And I would ache and my heart just felt so far away even though I was in Utah and he was in Missouri, but we had to write letters because we didn't have Skype and, and FaceTime and it wasn't allowed anyway. But we really grew closer to each other and we shared in that mission. At one point during that boot camp experience, he was on some early morning ruck march before dawn, freezing cold, hanging out with a bunch of privates who were messing around and getting everybody else in trouble. He was 25, which is a little older than most of his colleagues at that time. And I found a, a journal experience that he shared about how he's wandering through this pre-dawn morning, being bossed around and yanked around and treated like nothing. And he asked himself, why in the world am I doing this? Like, I, I, I've got a college education. I could go home. I, I could go get a job. There's a lot of opportunity for a young person in America. And in his own words, 
he shared the feelings that he experienced as he was walking there and marching there and freezing there and just getting kind of sick and irritated there. That he knew why he was doing what he was doing. He wasn't just marching and taking orders. He was walking toward freedom and opportunity for someone else in a distant land and a distant day that he didn't even yet know would take place. That was 2004. He came home at the end of that year. We soon found out we were expecting our first child. Then we had a second child. Then he deployed to Iraq. Then he went to another deployment in Iraq. He came home. We had a third child. We had a fourth child. He, de- he deployed to Afghanistan. And I remember that first deployment to Afghanistan just really doing me in. My oldest child was seven. My youngest child was nine months old. And we're a National Guard family. Nobody gets it around us. Nobody else is deploying in our neighborhood. Families who love us and, and, and mean well didn't really understand what that was like. I didn't even understand what it was like. I've never PCS'd. I've never lived on base. I've never been through what a lot of you in the active duty community know. And here I was, stubborn and strong like every good redhead, determined to make it through and, of course, not need any help. Well, that kind of backfired, and that deployment about did me in. My husband came home from that deployment. We had our fifth child. He got involved in politics. He ran for mayor, and he won. And at that point, it felt like this commitment to service and opportunity and hope and freedom kind of shifted away from military and more into politics and civic service. Still the same vein, still the same purpose, still the same drive, still the same shared family commitment, but it looked different. He stayed in the National Guard, and one weekend a month, he went down on a Saturday and Sunday in uniform. A couple weeks a year, he'd go to Japan or Korea and bring back all kinds of goodies and treats for the kids. But largely, I thought our life had transitioned into the military kind of being a a side thing. He was a Ph.D. candidate. He was a mayor. He was a small business owner. We had our sixth child. Things were going really well with the city. He was getting grant money and projects and getting involved on the state level and really showing some promise as a leader in our community. And then it was August of 2017. I was seven months pregnant with our seventh child when he was at a guard duty meeting and I was at home paying some bills on my laptop. He sent me a text message that simply said, Hey, hun." When I get home, we need to talk. You know, I've been married to this man for 15 years through these three deployments and elections and all kinds of crazy ideas. I knew what we needed to talk about. And I sent him a text back that simply said, where are you going and for how long? The answer was Afghanistan and for up to 400 days, which of course is how the paperwork reads. It was November, the baby was born, it was August when we had that conversation. The baby was born in November. Two months to the day of her birth, he got on a plane and went to Afghanistan for the second time on his fourth combat tour. We had all kinds of problems at home that year, which it seems always happen when our loved ones are deployed. And he was fighting his battles, and that was enough for me to worry about because I had to fight my own. I had a nursing baby and a 12-year-old and every other age in the middle. I had a two-year-old that wouldn't sleep and a six-year-old that wouldn't calm down and a ten-year-old that didn't want to talk to me about anything. And so I was kind of in my bubble of my world feeling like, man, I'm exhausted. 
And sometimes he'd call and be like, honey, I can't even talk to you. Like, I've got to go put these kids to bed and the dishes and PTA and school and homework and backpacks. I'm glad that you're fighting the Taliban, but I've got real things going on here. Then toward the end of the deployment in August, he was able to come home on leave for a couple of really awesome weeks. Now, I don't know about any other Gold Star spouses in this room, but leave is not always awesome. Sometimes leave is really hard because they come home, but there's kind of that you're here, but you're leaving again, and the kids aren't sure how to adjust, and it's like dad wants to come in and give orders because he's the major, but like the two-year-old doesn't care. But this leave was different. It was beautiful. Everyone got along. We made all kinds of memories with the kids. The other little things that sometimes seemed to fester or bother just didn't even exist. And we had a lovely time in August, and then we took him back to the airport and sent him back to Kabul. And I got busy getting kids ready for school and settling back down because dad's going to be home soon. Now you know, if you've got children, that once it's Halloween, Christmas is around the corner. And he left in January. He'll be home around January. So by the time we made it to October, I was starting to get in cruise control, thinking we got this. I'd finally learned how to kind of balance the kids. The baby's getting a little older. I learned how to ask for help, which made a huge difference. And the last Sunday of October, we were in church, and one of our fellow churchgoers came up to me and said, Jenny, how are you doing? How's your husband? And I took a big sigh of relief. I said, you know what? It's going so great. It's almost Halloween. You'll blink and it's Thanksgiving. Before you know it, it's Christmas. January will be here, and we are going to live happily ever after. Because I was convinced that as soon as he got home, everything would be perfect, and kids would listen, and dishes would do themselves, and it would just be fine. That was the last Sunday in October. My birthday is on Halloween, and we had a great time. And three days later, two soldiers knocked on my door in full-dress uniform. And my seven-year-old son answered the door. About six months later, he told me that he hadn't been able to sleep that night because he woke up in a dream a man in a uniform came to him and told him his father had been killed. Now, I don't need to go into the details of what happened after that knock on the door because you've all had that knock on the door. But I will tell you in echoing what has been said, God has been very good since that knock on the door. And I truly believe that he can take the darkest ashes of our life and make something beautiful and bright, not just for ourselves, but for those around us. I look at that family picture and think of my family, my Gold Star family, my kids. I worry for them. I ache for them. I feel they pay the highest price of freedom. And then I look around this room and I see all of you, my Gold Star family. I haven't even been a Gold Star widow three years yet. I still get TRICARE Prime. And I know some of you from all over the country. I know that you really get it. I know that when the war is raging in Afghanistan and political pundits are spinning in each way and everyone's saying, is this worth it? It was all in vain. I know every one of you in this room say, absolutely not. We know what our men and women in uniform fought for and continue to fight for. And we're all in this room because we love someone who believes some things are worth dying for. There's a lot of heartache in being gold star. There's broken dreams and lost opportunity. There's what-ifs and things I thought for sure we'd get to do together.
but I'll tell you, I've never had a title more honorable to me, second only to mother, to say I'm a gold star widow. I'm married to a man who paid part of the price of freedom. My family stood up and he ran in when many others would run out. And he would do it again for you and for me, just as so would your heroes every single day. As I got ready to come over here tonight in the hotel, I just had the news on in the background and the caption said, what went wrong in Afghanistan? And we're all going to spend weeks and weeks and weeks talking about what went wrong in Afghanistan. And I think there's value to that. We do need to figure out what went wrong or what goes wrong or how to make it better in the future. But I'd rather have the conversation of the good that's been done in places like Afghanistan and like Iraq and like Syria and like North Ogden, Utah and our National Guard and our Reserve and our active duty components around the world. Let's have that conversation as Americans. It's been a devastating few weeks. Coincidentally timed with this 20th anniversary of 9-11, it feels very heavy some days. And yet I'm hopeful and prayerful that it can be a wake-up call, not just to us, not to those of us who know what it feels like and what it costs, but to the rest of America. Less than 1% of this country currently wears a uniform. That's an overwhelming statistic. And we could get down about that and feel like, man, the rest of us are slacking. But I choose to look at it a different way. For every one man or woman in uniform, there's 99 of us. 99 of us they're willing to protect. And it should be 99 of us having their back, having each other's backs, standing up for the families, not just of the fallen, but those who keep fighting the fight. I love this country. And I know my husband loved this country long before we ever fell in love with each other. I miss him with every minute of every day. Sometimes it feels like he died just yesterday. Until I look at my baby, who's almost four. And it's a stark reminder that time has continued to march on. But you better believe you're not going to find us sitting in a corner, pitying ourselves, or wondering if it was worth it. Because just like my husband on that ruck march at boot camp, we're going to put our feet one foot in front of the other, marching to give freedom and opportunity a chance for ourselves, for our families, for our communities, and for this world. And we'll probably fall short and not be able to fix it all at once. But just like my husband and your son and your brother or sister or daughter or friend, we're going to prove they were willing to die trying. I'm going to live with every same amount of dedication. God bless each of you. God bless each of us, our children, the nieces and nephews, the fathers, the friends, the brothers, the sisters. God bless us to come together, to work together to stand tall and proud and to help the rest of America understand how ridiculous it is if they ask if my husband died for nothing. And what a ridiculous claim that would be to make to little my, my little baby Caroline and say, I'm sorry your father wasted his life. You'll have a really hard time convincing her of that because she knows her father is a hero who died 
trying. I love you each. I love this country. I love the great God who gives us that freedom every day. And I pray that as we come together as a country, we'll be able to put politics aside and find opportunities to stop pointing fingers, but instead ask the pointed questions and then work hand in hand and arm in arm to make sure that the greatness of America continues one day, one decade, and one generation at a time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the remarks that I shared at that Fort Benning dinner with several hundred other Gold Star family members. It's so important to reflect upon not only the loss and the devastation and the sacrifice that happened on 9-11 and throughout this 20-year war, but also the bravery and the heroism and the determination of the surviving families of these heroes to just keep putting one foot in front of the other day after day after day. We're excited now to shift gears a little bit and bring you to Kirsten Cragen and Kellyanne, our producer. This is going to be a really unique opportunity to look behind the scenes at the, what we call the Weaver Remembers 9-11 Project. Kirsten is a project manager. She's a recent graduate of Weaver State University and my intern for the project. She's been phenomenal. She is a great young lady that we're excited to see the good things she does uh, down the road and in the future. So if any of you either saw or heard about the Weaver 9-11 Project, Kirsten is largely to credit for so much of what happened. And then, of course, Kellyanne is our awesome producer, and she went on location on the busy, crazy day, September 11th itself, to get a feel for what this project is, what it means, and hopefully what it teaches and reminds us. Stay tuned. You're going to love it. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. A maze of emotions. That is how I would describe the temporary exhibit set up at the Weber County Fairgrounds, September 9th through 11th, 2021. The exhibit and surrounding events is entitled Weber Remembers, with the letters emphasizing that we remember. I do remember. In fact, my life has been shaped by those memories. Let me introduce myself. I'm not one of your normal hosts, after all. 
I am producer Kellyanne Halverson, and for this segment of our 9-11 special, I'll be offering a different perspective on resilience and remembrance. The perspective of an individual who came to age during the repercussions of that horrific day 20 years ago. I was a 15-year-old high school student when 9-11 happened. It was a day of shock when my childhood safety and security was flipped upside down. A day where I was confronted by real hatred for the first time. But also a time wherein the days that followed revealed a spirit of love, unity, support, and community like I'd never seen before. 20 years later, I am literally winding through a labyrinth of memory, a highly visual and highly evocative exhibit put together by hundreds of volunteers with the Major Brent Taylor Memorial Foundation and spearheaded by my insightful host, Jenny Taylor. While she is not here in person, as you heard in the last segment, I can see her thoughtful work surround me. You enter the building and begin your historical journey learning about the foundation of Weber County and its cities and taking a stroll through time until we enter the pop cultural boom of the 80s and 90s, the loud colors, loud music, loud memories of my childhood. Entering the year 2000, it's impossible to predict the danger ahead. The display literally takes you through the gates of the Brooklyn Bridge and into New York City, then down into the subway to that day. Then onto the Pentagon and the Pennsylvania crash site. Visual reminders of that day surround you with graphics and television clips from that day. The towers falling, newscasters reeling, people reacting in shock and awe and not understanding what was going on. And onto the Pentagon with its side collapsed in. Sharing this journey through the exhibit with me is Kirsten Kragen. She is the project manager of the Brent Taylor Foundation and one of the pivotal players for the creation of this event. She has been guiding me down this hallway of memory, offering insight into the meaning and creation. We both quiet as we physically enter the space of that day. We study the screens, the photographs, the numbers, the statistics around us. I'm reminded of where I was 20 years ago, a high school student in the suburbs of Salt Lake City, Utah standing with my best friend at the entryway of our school when another friend burst through the doors yelling that a plane had hit one of the Twin Towers in New York City. He looked agitated and frightened, stopping only for a moment before continuing on to the common area and hallways of the school like a town crier spreading the news. What building is that? My friend and I tried figuring out the message. But it wasn't until I saw the television feed that I understood. I'd been imagining a small plane hitting a big building. But the collision was much, much worse. The school froze. We were all watching the screens. People cried in the halls. I made my way to my first class, a religious class. And a seminary teacher with a stunned face offered us what comfort he could. We discussed the history of the Middle East, the emergence and divergence of religion and thought. And sadly, the reality of hatred that can consume some hearts. When I got to that class, the second tower was hit. The majority of the day was a maze of emotions, like I'm feeling as I wander this exhibit. But this time, there was a better understanding of the what, how, and why. Along the path of the exhibits are breakaway rooms with documenting films about different facets of the event. 
After the tour, Kirsten and I break away and share our own experiences, have our own conversation. She has no memories, being only a year old at the time, but her whole childhood was completely impacted by the event. This is that conversation. My name's Kirsten Cragen, and I am the project manager for this event and for the foundation. Um, my role kind of consists of a little bit of everything, which is what I love about it so much, because I get to be a part of anything and everything Jenny needs me to be. That sounds familiar. <laughs> so tell me a little bit about your role with this particular event, with the 9-11 we remember. So I've been able to do a little bit of everything, including some social media posts, just managing, making sure people know where they're going. I've been able to help coordinate with some of the volunteers and making sure that all of the performers are getting onto the stage and coordinating with the people that were in charge of the VIP event. It's I have a finger in, in a little bit of everything, which is has been really, really exciting and fun because I get to see how much of an impact that this event is having on everyone on on the people that are even sitting on the sidelines just just standing and greeting at the doors you can see that this event has impacted them well and it's definitely an impactful experience um we've been going through the museum experience in in one of the buildings there and it's just been amazing to to see this storyline as as we go through and it's definitely got me reflecting back on my experience I was about 15 years old when I was 15 years old when um, the attacks happened now how was your life shaped by the events of 9-11 particularly since you were about one years old when they happened so all your memory this this has happened yeah like you said I I was too young to really have memories of my own but I have gained memories based on things that my parents have told me and that my my friends and family have told me but I definitely think that this event was very impactful on my life I grew up in the generation that definitely listened to every single song Mm -hmm. that was ever created past this event and we watched Every 9-11, we watched all of the videos that they had to offer about it and learned as much as we possibly could. And I hope that we continue that tradition with, with our younger generations because that has been something that I have been able to take with me and know the impact that it had on so many people and understand it. But I, I will say that I, I'm still constantly learning, and, and that's a good thing. That's what this event is about, constantly learning and be able to re-experience and re-remember and continually remember. It's interesting to me to see all these kids here, and like you, they, they either weren't alive or they were too young to experience it at that time, and to see parents kind of explaining the experience to their kids it's kind of an an interesting thing to to see that I don't have kids of my own just that bringing this to younger generations and understanding the significance and how this has shaped our history and our culture today you know you mentioned the music and I remember so much those patriotic type country songs that that came out after it and this feeling of unity we had growing up thinking that as a childhood would have just been a, a crazy and a awesome and amazing thing to, to experience. And it, it takes time for you to understand the significance. How old were you when you would say you understood the significance of what 9-11 was and is? 
it kind of started in elementary school, really starting to understand and, and having it as a presence every single year. We made sure that that day was all about 9-11 and what those people went through and the things that came from it. And so I would, I would say elementary school was when it started to really hit. But I think that my respect has grown tremendously being involved in this event. So I think that as I am being a part of this and being able to walk through the exhibit so many times, I get chills every single time. And I learn something new every single time. And I feel something every time. That's something I haven't really thought about. When, when I was in school, you know, it wasn't a part of American history because it was American present, uh, present. So I never thought about, like, how children would be experiencing that in school. You know, and now you've gone and you've helped put together this exhibit that Jenny spearheaded with uh, Ferry. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the exhibit and how it was developed and, and came to be? Yeah, so the idea kind of, it it came around six months ago in March. Jenny and Johnny both sat in in a a Roy City Council meeting, and Jenny said, we should do something for 9-11. And Johnny said, okay, let's, let's, let's do it. Let's put something together. And the idea just kind of blossomed from there. And Johnny has been a tremendous person to have on this this team he put together all of the photo boards that we had to create this museum and it has become something more than I think any of us really realized. Um, as we were, we were talking about before, while we were walking through the exhibits, it's hard to explain to people what exactly they're going to get when they come and see this exhibit. It's beyond words, the things that you will see and the things that you will feel and experience. Because it's just so tangible, and it's it's right there, and there's so many emotions that come with it. Mm-hmm. We wanted to be able to convey those emotions and convey the remembrance of 9-11 to everyone in our community. And it's interesting because it's actually it's, it's a historical walkthrough, but you guys have put up these, the boards, what, do you, what did you call them? They're four by eight foam boards that we, that they're photo boards. And it's interesting because you're literally walking through a hallway of a timeline and you have uh, visual representations and photos of what happened and written words kind of building up to the events of 9-11 and the terrorist attacks. And it surrounds you. And I, I learned so many things just, just going through that. And, but you don't leave it there. You bring back hope within it after you go through the events of 9-11 we talk about how the nation came back together and how we were able to really take a stance in a war against terrorism and and come together as a country and this really is just an interesting and and a fantastic environment and exhibit that you've put together can you tell us a little bit about the the volunteers and the people who came together to make this possible We love our volunteers so much. This has been an incredible experience to see these people come together for good. You know, there there have been lots of volunteer opportunities across Utah and I'm sure across the nation as as we serve today in 9-11, but we have so appreciated and the respect and honor that they have shown throughout, throughout this event and 
we just hope that we're able we were able to convey the importance and and we can see it in our volunteers eyes we can we can see it in the way that they that the respect that they show for for everything that's going on here and i've talked to so many of them and every single one are blown away by the event itself and so grateful to be here and just to serve for us have you had any uh, interesting or poignant experiences with volunteers as you've been going through this process of planning over the past six months and then the today and the last few days of the event? You know, I had a lady come up to me um, after she had was given the opportunity to, to actually walk through the exhibit. And she, she just... She came up to me with, with tears in her eyes, and she just said, thank you so much for, for putting this together and, and for being here and for, for taking the time out of your, your busy life to put something on that is going to help our community. And I, that, that's one of those moments where you're like, wow, this, this was worth it. This was so, so worth it. Definitely. So you have volunteers here and political representative. You have people coming from from uh, the National Guard and, and different representatives of the military. But you also have some people here that are actually survivors of, of those events on 9-11. Can you tell me a little bit about, about working with them and the stories you've learned from them? Yes, that, that has been probably my very favorite experience of this whole thing because we're here for them, you know. This is, this is why we do that. They're why we, we do this. There's two survivors that we have with us. Um, the one, Scott, Scott Zink, he it was a police officer at, in New York at the time of 9-11, and he actually brought a piece of the plane to this event to be put on display one of the planes that crashed into um, the towers and was at found at ground zero um, he was able to bring that with him and I was able to be the one that greeted him at the door when he brought it and when he opened the back of his car and I saw that piece I there was an instant humbleness and sense of of compassion that went out and and came over my body yeah and just just the feelings and the emotions that come with something that has such significance amazing Uh, it was an amazing experience and then hearing his stories about the things that he saw and heard and and felt that during 9-11 and the days following with cleanup. Just such an incredible man to be able to be here and to share those stories. But we also have another survivor, Hector, who was in the subway at the time that it collapsed. And he has pictures and stories and had a cousin who was working as a first responder at the time who has just recently passed away from cancer related to the to the event and just his his ability ability to be here and talk about the things that he experienced it has been so humbling just watching the two of them interact with the school children and tell their stories and 
share their experiences and knowledge has been so amazing. I have so much loved being able to be a part of that. That's so great. And I I love that you use the word significance. Um, I think it's hard when you're not present at an event to understand the significance. And I love how you guys have really tried to illustrate and and bring that to the people here in Utah. Well, and you're doing this for an important cause, too. So this has actually been sponsored by the Brent Taylor Foundation, which you're a part of that. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about the mission of the Brent Taylor Foundation? Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the Major Brent Taylor Foundation is all about leadership and scholarship. We, we want to make sure that the future generations of America are good leaders. And, and we, we strive as, as a foundation to, to do our best to be able to give those students and those children opportunities to be able to strive in their leadership roles. And I think that this, this event does that really well because good leaders know where they came from and they they know things about their past and this is a perfect opportunity to share with those younger generation the rising generation of our future leaders Mm -hmm. to come here come together and see a community full of people who are willing to unite and connect and and being able to share that with them and to hopefully allow them to be able to use that in their future for their for their leadership skills that's just wonderful you know and speaking of leadership skills as as you've taken this on I bet you've you've learned some some things yourself what have you learned uh while planning and managing this event you know there are there are a lot of things um some of them silly things that that I have definitely learned um from learning how to to manage a situation where a child is not feeling well, you know, in, in an exhibit and what to do there to to understanding what it what it means to be a leader and what it means to be in charge of something with this much gravity. Mm-hmm. You know, there I've had so many people come and come and ask questions and and want to learn more about the event and and it's so important as as a representative of this event, but not only this event of the foundation that I work for, it is it's important for me to have the knowledge necessary and to answer those questions. This event has taught me so much about my capabilities and about the capabilities of people in general. Like the, these volunteers that are out here, the the people that are just here to honor 9-11 and to to remember and to commit there are so many good people out there and I have spoken to so many of them and learned so much from them and I hope to continue that learning that's awesome I can just see the smile on your face I wish that could be picked up by a recorder uh sadly it can't but I I love that this you know the whole point of the the Brent Taylor Foundation is to teach people about leadership and that's exactly what you're you're getting out of this event as you've been going through it and you can hear in the background we we really do have a community that came out here uh we're sitting outside of one of the event halls here and you can hear uh the people inside their their kids dancing there's music groups here there's all these amazing different exhibits um going on exhibitors uh, a community that's come out to support it and and uh national guard and, and people like that really coming together to support 
this community and to help support the the foundation. Now, you grew up after 9-11, and one thing we, we always talk about in this program is resilience. What does it mean to you? So as someone that grew up after 9-11 and has been part of their cultural history um, and the reality of their life. What about this experience and the experience growing up in post-9-11 world? What has it taught you about resilience? You know, I think, I think I've, I've learned a lot over the years about, about continuing on, you know. Uh, resilience is all about pushing forward through through hard things and being a part of this foundation and a part of this event has has shown me there are so many people out there that are resilient and can continue pushing forward even through the toughest of times you know all all of the families that lost people in 9-11 and and the families that continue to lose people overseas and at home and abroad you know and the the families that continue to lose people to the cancers that were were so prevalent after 9-11 these people are still pushing forward and that gives so much hope It, it brings so much hope to my life and to the people's lives that are here we see that even from the survivors that are here in at this event, I have spoken to them many times and seen their resilience and their ability to keep pushing forward and share their stories and be out there and, and continue to struggle but to still see the good in the world. And, and that hope brings me so much joy. Let's return to that exhibit. I want you all to know that America We continue through the hallway of photographs, past the tragic day and into the days of unity, support, and patriotism that followed. While we hurt, the world continued to turn. We mourned our lost and cherished a bit more those we still had. My father often shares this lesson he learned the days that followed 9-11. For years, he had visited the same gas station and visited with the same attendant almost every day. The next time he saw her, after 9-11, he made it a point to learn her name and greeted her by name each day after that. He learned to love his neighbor more. For me, my experience was shaped by the small religious classroom with that teacher struggling to share history And in the same emotionally ragged breath, I learned the value of understanding with love. My desire to learn about the other increased. To learn about history and culture increased. To seek for reasons to love, not reasons to hate. We still can't understand the intricacies of that day. But we can strive to celebrate the lives we lost, the stories of hope told, and the unity we felt after. You continue through the exhibit... We move through the war on terrorism, the lives lost seeking and preaching and spreading freedom around the world and in the Middle East. The exhibit closes with a walk through that time and it brings us back to Utah history with the Winter Olympics right here in 2002. This was February 2002, five months after 9-11. The world so soon after such a shattering event came back together and celebrated light and life, and each other together. 
In my job as the producer for Relentlessly Resilient, I don't often speak, but I do always try to listen. I listen closely to each guest as they share what resilience means to them. And I ask myself each time, what does resilience mean to me as well? At the end of the We Remember journey today, I find myself asking the same thing. In the shadow of 9-11, what does resilience mean to me? I think, I think that for me, it's to move out from the shadow and seek the light. Shadows do not exist without the presence of light. It is that contrast that adds visibility to the situation. Time and time again, I sit with Michelle and Jenny recording the show. I'm astonished of how it is just as easy to burst into laughter as it is to burst into tears. They both have gone through significant trials, losing not only their husbands, but the regular rhythms of their day-to-day lives. And instead of cowering in that darkness, that is always available. They have chosen to seek light, to share stories of resilience, and then close each episode with a plea for understanding and kindness towards others. That is remembering 9-11 means to me. Stepping out of the shadows while respecting the reality that they are there and doing what we can to move towards the light. And when possible, invite people to join you in its warmth. We're going to go ahead and take a break. And when we come back, we're going to listen to Jenny and Michelle. They're going to share a bit about their stories of where they were 9-11 and reflecting on what it still means today, 20 years later. We'll be right back. to the Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. I'm producer Kellyanne and grateful to share a little bit of my voice today to talk about 9-11 and what it was like growing up in a world post 9-11 and that impact there. But of course, you want to hear from our hosts. Uh, We have Jenny Taylor and Michelle Scharf here, and they're going to discuss a little bit about the impact 9-11 has had in their lives and what it's been like this past weekend really looking back and remembering this tragic event that's just shaped our world. Uh, Michelle, can you tell me a little bit about where you were um, during 9-11 and and how you remembered it this weekend? So, yes, I, like most other people, have uh, very clear memories of what that day was like. I had just sent my husband off to work. He, He was driving away in his truck. I was getting two kids to ready to go out to the door to school. I had a baby who I was nursing on my breast. And um, I received a phone call from my husband. But I was busy trying to run around with one arm getting two kids out the door while I was nursing a, a baby. And so I, I missed the phone call. And he called back. And I thought, who's calling me? Why is what you know somebody really wants to get a hold of me so i went to the phone and it was my husband and he was panicked and uh he said michelle i'm listening to the radio i don't know if this is some like orwellian something i i don't know if they're they're if this is a joke and i i'm like what are you talking about calm down and he's like michelle go to the television you've got to turn on the tv and i said what are you talking about and he said they're saying a plane just crashed into a building. I'm like, what? Well, that doesn't make sense. Planes don't crash into buildings. And um, I turned on the television 
And I had just put the baby down, went to find the remote, was standing in my living room. I turned on the television. It took a few minutes to warm up <laughs> and and to come into focus. And uh, I turned it on just in time to watch the second plane hit the building. And I fell to my knees, just fell to my knees. And I remember saying to my husband, oh, my God, is this it? Is this the last days? Is this the beginning of the end? Is this is this Armageddon? Is this a war? Is this a third war? And he's like, I don't know. I don't know. He goes, just tell me what they're saying on, on the TV. And so I listened to the television with him for a while. And I asked him, I said, I don't know what to do. Do I send our kids to school or do I keep them home? And we decided that I'd send the two kids off to school. And then I had plans for my two youngest to go to with my girlfriends to a park, Barnes Park in Gaysville. I lived in Fruit Heights at the time. Uh, we're used to the sounds of freedom uh, at the Air Force. And we also are in flight patterns and can watch the planes all day long coming in and out of Salt Lake International. And when we went to the park, it was a creepy, airy feeling because the skies were silent for the first time since living in Utah. And my girlfriends and I talked about it. And we pondered about what was going on and what this would mean. And um, it was just a pretty somber day where there was a lot of not knowing and not understanding what was really taking place. Um, I, I feel like at that time... Um, I had a lot of faith in both my church and um, my husband and my husband was so reassuring and um, but I had a lot of fear about what this meant uh, long term for our nation. I was so excited that the, the, the days after there was this sense of coming together Although somebody pointed out to me, and it is true, and as I reflect back, I do remember um, how suddenly things were changing rapidly. TSA came into being. Uh, I was profiled every single time I went through. I was a white woman with blonde hair and blue eyes, and every time I went through with children, I I was profiled. And I, I began to believe I was being profiled so that I I took out the balance of the, the dark skin uh, whatever religion or or uh stereotype stereotype mm -hmm. that that they might have been profiling and looking for and i did take a few flights to california shortly after um after things had resumed and and i did notice the tensions that were were there and the tensions that existed and that did bother me so as much as america came together there was also a beginning of and I'm sure it was always there, but there was definitely a specific uh, type of person that I feel like um, I'm sure didn't feel that coming together of America. Mm. And for that, I'm sorry. And um, and it is sad. Moving forward, 
it's been interesting because, and I've I've shed a lot of tears this last week, and I'm surprised about it. Jenny's been working hard on this um, display, this memorial display. I was very excited to go see it and support mm-hmm. her and support the Brent Taylor Foundation. And um, Saturday came. I had been driving up from Orem, and I was on my way home, and I was going to just drive straight up to the 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 center where it was being held. Um, and I start passing fire trucks, flying flags. And the first one I passed, I felt kind of a weight on my chest. And the second one, I honked my horn as I went through and under the bridge. And the third one, I burst into tears and I had to pull my car over because I couldn't see to drive. And I finally determined that I was not in a good place and that there was a lot of emotions coming up for me that really surprised me. And it's complicated for me in probably ways that are a little bit slightly different for other people. Um, The whole reason this podcast exists is because of a man I never met, but a, a man who showed me some love and kindness And he sent me a symbolic message of an American flag the day before my husband's celebration of life. And he'd gotten to know me through the social media group. And he he clearly was touched by my love and my devotion to my husband, my concerns for my family, and the concerns that I'd shared that John had had for me which is that I would be looked after, protected, and and that I would have a sense of security. That was his biggest concern. He didn't want to leave me. He just didn't want to leave me because he he knew that he wanted to be my protector. So when Brent gave me that flag... I sat on that end of the bed, and to me it was a message that somehow my husband had touched the heart of Brent, that somehow I was being told I was going to be looked over and provided. The American flag holds such a promise of hope. And because I have served in politics and um, helping others to win elections, I felt like like it was just the most poignant gift that I could have been given in that moment. It was a surprising gift. I was surprised that it impacted me the way that it did. And I had no idea that three months to the day later that he had flown that flag, his life would be taken in Afghanistan. And so particularly on this 20th anniversary with the withdrawal of troops, and in a way that has not been what I feel is right to those who have served for 20 years and for those who have sacrificed in Afghanistan, not only on the behalf of themselves for their own freedoms, but to the American people. And I felt like there was a betrayal of trust and a betrayal that has happened that I'm not comfortable with. 
And so when I was driving under those overpasses and I was seeing those flags and I was seeing the firefighters and thinking about watching 20 years ago, men rushing in with no particular concern for their own well-being, but to generally do everything to save another human. I found it overwhelming and I found it too much for me to even bear walking in to see the actual memorial or to watch this year as uh, as as there were TVs, news reports on it. I just, I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I ended up finding myself in bed and crying. But I have to say... Well, in a lot of ways, I don't think that we're smarter, safer, or more united. And and for all of those things, I have a lot of grief. I do believe in the, in the promise of what America is. And I hope at some point, enough of our hearts will be touched that we'll start caring again for our neighbors, whether it's by getting a vaccine wearing a mask, which has become so political, and in the right to not. Um, I don't believe in the mandates. Um, we, we, are, we are finding ourselves in such interesting days. And I really am concerned that what it might be, that what it might take to shift things again is another huge disaster at which I feel like we are at risk for. Terrorism on our soil in stressed hospitals where there's already full trauma beds. Where are these people going to go? And we're going to have to start realizing that we have to come together, that we're more alike than we are different. And the hopes and the dreams that we have are good and they are unique and that we do live in a great nation. I don't think we live in the greatest and I don't think that we're being the greatest, but I think that we have the potential to be that. And I think that there's been a lot of sacrifice on that behalf. And I hope that at some point we, we start reaching in our hearts to start living that way. Mm-hmm. Definitely that, that need to come together again without another huge disaster something is is definitely something I've I've felt as well as as I've been pondering and thinking about this. Um Jenny, can you tell us a little bit about your experience where you were 20 years ago and how you found yourself um spearheading the 9/11 project and and being back east uh talking at the rededications of these different memorials? Yeah, you know, it's so interesting when I think about 9-11 in 2001, because I wasn't even in the country. I had just left as a missionary for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints at the end of August. So I was about three weeks into this mission. I was in Santiago, Chile. I was so excited to be there and learning Spanish and teaching people about God. And one that Tuesday, it was, of course, a Tuesday, we all remember, we were at a training meeting for new missionaries. And our mission president pulled all the Americans aside and let us know what had happened. And the fear and the shock and the devastation and the question and the worry, what will this mean? What does this look like? Uh, missionaries don't 
watch TV all day. We didn't have access to some of the news that was unfolding. We didn't have the information of what uh, everybody else was kind of getting. Not that there was a lot of information to get other than more devastation, but it really did feel kind of like that disconnect and that separation from what was going on. And I love this country. I've loved this country for a really long time. And like so many other Americans, I wondered what would this mean for our country and for our countrymen? And will there be several more attacks? Will we ever feel safe again? And I, I, I was able to finish my mission and um, came home a couple years later and always kind of felt like I'd really missed out on that pivotal moment in my generation's American history. I felt like I, I wasn't there for it. I wasn't actually living through it. It was something I was hearing about secondhand, and I read a lot of books about it after I got home and, of course, watched some of the television specials. And I'll admit that as a self-declared patriot, I really kind of felt like I'd missed out and that that was something other Americans had had lived through and that it would define other Americans' lives. And, you know, it was the Pearl Harbor moment for my generation, and I felt like I kind of missed it. Until about the 10-year anniversary. Because at about the 10-year anniversary, I was now married to a man who was a soldier who was at the time deployed to Afghanistan in 2011. We had four children. And I began to realize my entire life had been defined by the events of that Tuesday morning, even though I had lived in a foreign country and missed all the news coverage and I missed all the candlelight vigils and I missed all the coming together with flags and so it shaped my life in almost a second hand way to where it's not what happened or where I was that Tuesday morning but what it led to and that's of course the war on terrorism and this husband of mine who I did not know yet at that time he had always wanted to be in the military and serve our country but like so many others in our generation those events of that fateful day sealed the deal. I, I can't tell you how many soldiers that are about my age will tell you, oh, yeah, I absolutely signed up because of 9-11. Absolutely, I was ready to go defend our nation, stand up for those principles. Like Michelle said, we're not perfect. We are far from perfect as a nation. We have all kinds of problems in our history and in our present. But the ideals of America, the principles of freedom— those are beautiful and worth defending and they're worth spreading and they're literally worth dying for. And so at the time of the 10th anniversary, again, 2011, I thought, oh, this, this day has definitely defined my life. And I felt like I had not missed that crucial uh, generational impactful moment. And then, of course, now here we are at the 20th anniversary. Mm-hmm. And my husband deployed the, set, the fourth time. We have seven kids. He now died in that global war on terror that began the moment that plane crashed into that tower. And it's caused me all kinds of reflection of what little I knew 20 years ago on a Tuesday morning in Santiago, Chile, versus where I am now as a widow, as a mother. Um, kind of unintentionally, I've become almost a spokesperson for other military families and and surviving families, not that I necessarily feel myself with the right to speak for them, but that I can give a voice to that side of the story that very few Americans know. I've said it before, I have a backstage pass to the price of freedom. I've been to Dover in the middle of the night and watched a flag-drip casket transfer from an aircraft to a military hearse and then drive away. 
I've been handed a triangle folded flag off of a casket at a funeral by a two-star general for the Utah National Guard and the United States Army. I mean, I've had some of these experiences that are almost too reverent to claim. I look at myself from outside of myself and think I have been in some of the most sacred spaces of American history because of my husband's service and sacrifice. And I know it's not my story, and it's not his story. It really is the American story. And days like this 20th anniversary of 9-11, in the midst of this sheer chaos and devastation currently in Afghanistan, can hopefully serve as a wake-up call. I don't like what I'm seeing happening in Afghanistan. It hurts. It, it's devastating. It's heartbreaking. It's angering. It's frustrating. And yet I hope it's opening our eyes to the fact that freedom is not free. That's more than a bumper sticker. I hope it's opening our eyes to the fact that there are men and women willing to die, literally trying to save another's chance for hope and opportunity. I think of the 13 military members who were killed just weeks ago, including one from Utah. And, and, you know, the communities all across the nation impacted by that loss. They literally died trying they literally died trying. And I love that Michelle says that flag represents so much hope to her in a very personal way. And it's not the hope of the Constitution. It's not the hope of the White House. It's not the hope of Congress. It's the hope of freedom. Yep. An opportunity and another chance and a second day and rising from the ashes and all of those things that really are, to me, what America is all about. We're not a perfect union. Mm-hmm. But we have a collective goal to be a more perfect union every single day. And so this last couple of weeks has been crazy in my life. Uh, lots of twists and turns I wouldn't have anticipated. We did plan a, a memorial exhibit in my county, Weber County, Utah. Worked together, had a strong team. Uh, co-chair Johnny Ferry, who really had the vision behind everything. We ended up with a team of 10 or 20 of us, you know, kind of behind the scenes, which turned into over 400 volunteers and over 13,000 visitors coming just because we all felt like we needed to be together. And I respect what Michelle said, where it was just too much. There were several times where several of us had to kind of step aside and say, yes, we need to remember. Yes, we need to experience. Yes, we need to go through this. But wow, it's almost too much to watch in the history books, let alone to re-experience the emotions of the day. I think that that was really... every day. I think that that was the real surprising thing for me, Jenny. I I really had no expectation that this day would hold so much trauma for me. And right. I look back at so that now. Hard. Yes. And I look back at it and I think I raised, I had a, tw- a four-month-old on my breast that day. And I, I, I'm looking back over the struggles that some of my kids have had and I think how much of America right now, 20 years to, you know, 20 years worth, how much of our parenting was marinated in a trauma response as parents out of fear, out of uncertainty? Like how, how much of, of this of like what we're seeing is really the fallout from that day in ways that we have not processed as a nation. And I'm still, I'm doing a lot of personal work on myself anyway from my own 32-year marriage and and losing a spouse that I loved and 
having another life take a new direction. And I think it's just all bubbling with all of it. I think that there's just so much. And I, I think, I, I don't think it's, I, I don't think I'm too off to say that it, it might not have been like a conscious trauma, but a lot of fear that we operated on and, and, and that has bred distrust, you know, and it's complicated. And I think that we're going to be unpacking this for a long time, but it was really surprising and interesting for me to personally have it impact me in such a way that I really felt like I can't, I can't do this today. Yeah. Well, and I love that, Michelle. I mean, going back to what's the whole mission of this show, this resilience and how important it is to let those moments be a part of our resilience. Right. Instead of you forcing yourself to keep driving on the freeway or, you know, keep sobbing under the overpass, to recognize, you know what, the strongest thing I can do today is go home. Right. And just just check out for a minute and let myself process these emotions and let myself be here. Let myself acknowledge the fact that maybe there are emotions I have not yet processed and I might need to process. And I think that to me is what this whole 9-11, really just this last couple of months has been. It's been, again, I keep using the words heartbreaking and devastating. I think August and September of 2021 have been heartbreaking and devastating on a lot of fronts. And yet I keep holding out hope and trying to remain optimistic that we as a nation can be resilient, that we as a people can sit down and cry and grieve and even languish and anguish. And then we're going to roll up our sleeves and, like you said, hopefully be kinder to our neighbors, hopefully get more involved in what's going on around us, hopefully have our eyes opened and and our hearts willing. But that's where I just find, I hope that this past week or so, this past month or so, these events, rather than being the defining moment that tears us apart even further as a nation, I really do hope it helps us be refined and come together and realize that that's what resilience is. Yeah, We've absolutely. Got to be a resilient nation. Freedom requires massive resilience, ups and downs, ins and outs, highs and lows, and you just stick with the fight one step at a time. So yeah, I think and this is an important conversation. I feel like for us as Americans, it really is going to boil down to we have to be willing to listen to one another. So when somebody says, so when somebody says, I feel hurt or I feel um, not heard, that we can actually listen and hear them and acknowledge them and have that space. And when we all start hearing and listening to each other and not have our own agendas or our own political ideologies that are driving our responses but really start driving our responses with our hearts. Mm -hmm. And when we start really finding a way to really love our fellow American, I I mean, I I think the gates of heaven will pour out upon us and there will be, um, you know, I'm not, I, I, I have actually more hope, even though I feel like we're in the most perilous of times, which I also find really ironic because I was always such a fearful person and I, I, I kind of made a joke on social media that it wasn't really a joke, but I said, gosh, I kind of bummed my apocalypse, my perfect 
apocalypse buddy died on me before the fun even got started. But, you know, um, I always had this sense of security because I always knew John was so handy and he was so amazing and he could build something from nothing. He was the MacGyver of all MacGyvers. And, and I, there was so much peace in me. Like I always felt like no matter what happened in the world, I would always be protected and safe. And I've lost that. And yet I feel protected and safe. I I feel confident and I feel watched over and I also feel like I've grown so much and I've had this heart awakening of my own. And I feel like it's possible for all of us. We just have to want it. And I I feel like that's part of the reason that the show exists is I want people to have a place to voice their hurts, to be heard, to document it, but to also acknowledge how much stronger they are because of the, the hard thing. I think we can do this. I, I, I refuse to give up hope. And I think part of that is because I refuse to let Brent Taylor's death become one that is in vain. And for every other Gold Star family and for every other man that served or, and woman who did not come home, or has faced traumatic atrocities, that their service is not in vain. I, I think the promise of hope is worth it. The promise of freedom, it's worth it. But we've got to start operating from love instead of fear. And I feel like we've led 20 years of life in fear, and it's really time that we open our hearts to love. I think that was a lot of what came to me as well um, over the weekend and seeing you guys as examples of that, of I I get this opportunity every, every other week to sit and listen to you guys have these conversations where you work through the hard in order to come to the hope. And it's not just hope for you as an individual, but okay, how can we help other people because of this? And that's one thing I, I talked a bit about um, in the last segment of, you know, we can choose to stay in this shadow of darkness, of fear, of anger, or we can choose to step out into the light to find the hope and to take someone else with us. And I think that really is is a key of resilience that I'm learning as as I'm sitting on the show, as I'm I'm helping pull pull this together. And one thing I was thinking about this weekend as as we were planning the show, um, uh, Weber remembers was was the theme with highlighted we remember. And I was thinking, why is why is that report important? And it's because. We are resilient because we remember. We're, we're not going to hide it away. We're not going to um, ignore that and pretend life was beautiful and wonderful. But we acknowledge what we've gone through. We've acknowledged where we're going because of it. And I really think that's a, a key to this resilience. It's not just a memorial to, to this tragic event. But it's, yes, this happened. Let's take a step forward. Let's bring others with us. And that's one thing you guys have taught me as I've been listening in on the show. Well, thank you for sharing that. Sometimes sometimes we come and do this and it's like, yeah, it's good. It's great when we get feedbacks from our <laughs> listeners. It, it's awesome because mm-hmm. I didn't realize how many lives we really are touching. And, you know, this was a concept I had for a long time that I hid in my heart and I mm-hmm. thought no one would want it. And when I finally shared it, it just became so simple. I think part of that was uh, the timing with Jenny and I and, mm-hmm. and 
and just the organic nature of of it happening. It, it's it's a powerful uh, venue, and I, I'm glad to be a part of it. And I, I'm glad I'm glad that I I finally decided to speak up and share my thoughts and vision for this. But Jenny, I love you so much. I think that you are amazing. I see why everyone th- that uh, meets me, um, especially if they're talking to me and I've answered show mail or whatever. It's always, I can't wait to meet Jenny. I can't wait to meet Jenny. She's so amazing. And you really you are. So nice. You really are amazing though. You, you really are. And uh, you've taken a terrible tragedy and be able to uh, not only uh, forward Brent's living, it's a living legacy and it's beautiful. Well, I appreciate that you recognize it as that because it really is exactly what you talked about that keeps me going. And that is a determination to make sure none of this is in vain. Not just Brent, but hundreds of thousands of living and deceased service members who literally fight every day trying to keep us safe and free and alive so we can hope and live and dream. And I I get great energy from that. Michelle, I love this show. I love that you brought it to all of us because not only are you giving all of us a place to set our stories down and to process them through words, but through doing that, we're able to find each other. And yeah. we're able to say, oh, my goodness, if so-and-so has faced this or that and still came out on top, man, I guess I can make it through whatever I've got to go through. And Kellyanne, thank you for not only you know running the switchboard every week, but your heart and soul and everything that you've shared today has been so beautiful and getting those connections over the weekend during 9-11 and even, even just the very idea of having this concept for kind of a different conversation this week, I think it's timely and I think it's so important. And I'm grateful. I'm grateful to be part of this podcast. You ladies certainly help me be resilient. And I think the best thing you do is you help me be relentless because it's one thing to be resilient, but man, we just got to keep going. So I, I hope all of our listeners have enjoyed this too. We know this is a little bit of an unorthodox week. Um, we hope it's given you a chance to think and reflect. And like Michelle said, maybe this is opening your eyes and softening your heart a bit. We hope you'll reach out to us. You probably have a story that you could share or know someone who has a story that could share that would uplift and inspire someone else. And if that's the case, please come find us. You can email us at rrpodcast at ksl.com, or you can find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient, Instagram, Relentlessly Resilient Podcast, DM me or Michelle, and we'll get back to you. We love having these conversations about just how strong the human soul can be when we keep working that muscle of resilience. Remember, whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles others are dealing with in their own lives. Have a great day. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. 
I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow the letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.